first we have to change our understanding of uh, what fire is capable of doing under the influence of climate change with these 24-hour burning periods and um, longer fire seasons. I've read a number of papers that, that posit that more lightning fires are more likely uh, in areas where we're not used to seeing huge lightning bests, lower elevation, that kind of stuff. So we need to change our orientation. And once we understand what fires are capable of doing, I think we need to plan uh, in a different way as a society for dealing with them. I was thinking of the words of a friend of mine who's since passed on, who was an IC, and he always said, don't plan for the next ridge, plan for the ridge where you can actually do something worthwhile. Hey folks, and welcome to episode 23 of Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, but today is our second episode with guest host Zeke Lunder of The Lookout. We brought Zeke on because of the wonderful work that he's done through The Lookout, which I will go into in a little bit here, Um, but also because he's based in Chico, California, kind of at the epicenter of a lot of recent wildfires. And that being the case, he has a lot of great access to folks who have a deep knowledge of wildfire and uh, how it's impacting the communities in Northern California. Zeke's guest today is Sue Huzari, who has a deep background of working in California and working in wildfire, so much so that I won't go into it right now, but Zeke and Sue talk about her background quite a bit at the very beginning of this episode. I have actually spoken to Sue in the past for a story that I wrote about some of the first female hotshots in the U.S. Um, Sue was a member of the Lassen Hotshots in 1975 and 1976, I believe, And I will link to that story actually in this episode's show notes. I will also have some links for Zeke's organization, The Lookout, which is a digital media project, digital media platform for education and storytelling and information sharing related to wildfire. Um, He's done a great job with this project, which really grew during the Dixie Fire and the Caldor Fires in Northern California this last summer during which Zeke was able to provide a lot of contextual information, some data analysis, some map analysis, um, all of which really contributed to homeowners and uh, residents of these areas having a lot more information and a lot more context for what was going on in their backyards. So that all being said, I will include a link to The Lookout in this episode's show notes, as well as ways to donate to The Lookout. And as always, I will also include the Life with Fire Patreon page, so anybody that's interested in donating to our project can do so. And finally, let's get into it. Here is Zeke Lunder interviewing Sue Hazari. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life with Fire podcast. My name is Zeke Lunder. I run the website thelookout.org. And uh, Amanda asked me to do a couple guest episodes, so I'm glad to be here. And I've lined up probably the best guest I could possibly have imagined, Sue Husari. Sue started her wildfire career in the mid-70s on the Lassen National Forest, where she was one of the first female hotshots in the country. Since then, she's worked her way up from Fireline Grunt to lead the wildland fire management programs for the Forest Service in California and for the National Park Service for the Pacific West region. Along the way, she's been a pioneer prescribed burner, worked as a fire behavior analyst on large wildfires, and mentored many of the current 
leaders of our national fire programs. Sue Husari, welcome to the Life with Fire podcast. When did you know that you were going to have a career in fire? It just happened. Like most firefighters, I started as a seasonal. And at the time, I thought I was going to go to graduate school and study agaricology, you know, mushrooms. That was the plan anyway. But I went to work firefighting, and then I got another job firefighting, and pretty soon that's what I did. And then I retired uh, a lot of years later. So maybe you can tell us some of the places that firefighting has taken you. Happy Camp BD, Lass and Hotshots, Helitac, went to Butte Meadows, then I went to Mineral. I was on engines. Somehow I managed to get hired seasonally at Joshua Tree for several years, 80, 81, 82, and I helped develop their fire program. I w- was like, wow, I'm going to be on these engines forever. So I took a downgrade to go to the park service at Pinnacles. And then I went to Everglades, and I was there for a long time. Yeah, it was a weird career trajectory. I was actually part of the solution to the consent decree. Ken called me because he said, we never trained anybody, so we don't have anybody we can hire, but the Park Service promoted you, and now you're a GS-11. Come to the regional office. And I had a small child, and I needed to get back to California, so we came back. So what was the job that you came back to? I was in charge of the fuels program for the region. I was assistant director for fuels, and then I was the deputy for fire and aviation management. And then uh, Tom Nichols called me up and said, the job you've always wanted is available. And I applied for the regional FMO and was there for 10 years. So that was with the Park Service. And then I retired. And then foolishly went to the Board of Forestry a couple of years later, which is not a job. It's a volunteer thing. It's a lot of work, though. And what, what kept you in it? Uh, well, you know, it's it's pretty addictive, uh, especially when you're actually fighting fire. You know, the adrenaline and um, the people, because they're an interesting group almost always, the people you work with in fire. I was in Everglades as the fire management officer for quite a long time, and that was probably the most fun job I ever had because... The prescription window was not a window, it was like a garage door, and um, there were lots of opportunities to burn and lots of opportunities to learn. I was able to uh, work with interesting people from um, the national office a lot on a lot of different things, and I was able to teach fire behavior at the national level. But it was a great job. And then after that, I was more in management. But I still had um, a lot of opportunities to meet fascinating people and see wonderful places and work on fires all over the country. Well, since you have experience working all over the country, let's talk now about California. You know, um, you and I talked the other day about, we were talking about kind of national issues with firefighting, and you pointed out that California really is its own country when it comes to wildfire management, that so much of what applies in the rest of the country doesn't really apply in California? Well, uh, 
the state, a lot of the state agencies and a lot of the county fire departments are very well funded. So it's different than most places just because of the abundance of firefighting resources and the amount of money that's available to, um, at the state level to fund things like very large air tankers and all that sort of thing. So, but even though California has more firefighting resources than anywhere else in the country, and I mean wildland firefighting resources, we're learning that given the way we deal with fire, it's not enough. Will, will it ever be enough? I don't think so. It'll never be enough unless, unless we change how we use the resources. And I, I think that's what many people are thinking about um, after the last few fire seasons. So yeah, we've spent $650 million just on a Dixie fire this year. Uh, I can think of lots of different outcomes um, that we could fund with $650 million that wouldn't just leave us with a million acre burn scar and some destroyed towns. Where do you think we should be starting in thinking of uh, re-envisioning how we manage fire? Well, thinking about the Dixie Fire, um, the way we, and I, I think this would be a true of any teams or agencies, so I'm not saying that anyone could do a better job, but because of the rate at which fire behavior is changing right now, or and our concepts of fire behavior, it wasn't possible for the people on that particular fire who were managing it to conceive of what it could do. I, I think that was uh, pretty obvious to, to all of us who were watching and I will say that I never dreamed either that um, that the Dixie Fire would do what it did until it did it. And uh, maybe some people did, but uh, it, it really was a huge surprise. So I think the first thing that we need to do is reset our expectations about what fires in California are capable of doing in areas like where the Dixie Fire burned yeah, you know, I think this is a critical point we need to be communicating to the public. I know a lot of the assumptions I'd made about the fire resiliency of the flatter wealth-in forest around Chester really went out the window this year. First, we have to change our understanding of uh, what fire is capable of doing under the influence of climate change with these 24-hour burning periods and... Um, Longer fire seasons. I've read a number of papers that that posit that more lightning fires are more likely uh, in areas where we're not used to seeing huge lightning bursts, lower elevation, that kind of stuff. So we need to change our orientation. And once we understand what fires are capable of doing, I think we need to plan uh, in a different way as a society for dealing with them. And, I, I, and part of that is education uh, of um, 
agencies uh, looking and learning from these experiences. I was thinking of the words of a friend of mine who's since passed on, who was an IC, and he always said, don't plan for the next ridge. Plan for the ridge where you can actually do something worthwhile. Right. But we don't know how to use those ridges because we are finding that in, in, under the extreme conditions, burnouts are spotting. Right. And uh, they're difficult to control. You have very little time to do them. So you mentioned 24-hour burning periods. Can you talk a little as a, f- a firefighter just about what that means? There's uh, just a very short window of opportunity uh, where um, things cool down and humidity goes up a tiny bit where you could potentially do burnouts during the nighttime. And um, teams are always reluctant and people are reluctant to light these things. But, you know, in the past on fires that I was on in California, we had, uh, except during um, phone wind or Santa Ana wind conditions, we'd have a, a pretty long period at night when we could do burning ahead of the fire and create a black line. But um, now that period is much shorter. And it also makes it much harder to put in direct line, uh, especially with um, crews, uh, unless you're way back on a part of the fire that's already moved through. But um, And it's become more difficult to do direct line with dozers, apparently, too. You know, So we're having to move way back from the fire and take huge risks of of burning very large areas of the country. And uh, then if that doesn't work, it's the next ridge. Right. And meanwhile, you've advanced the fire uh, yeah. many miles by putting the fire on the ground. Yeah, and, and that's not a criticism. We, we only have so many tactics that we can use. Uh, but I think you said, how big would the Dixie Fire be if we hadn't moved it? forward many, many times. And that's, again, um, that's not something when you're in the moment, hindsight, it's great. We shouldn't have done that. The fire would have been smaller if we would have just left it alone. That's hindsight. When you're in in the moment and when there's um, resources and towns and structures in the way and ranches, uh, especially where the majority of the land is private or a big part of the land is private, there's not a lot of options. You can't just say, well, we're just going to burn out on the other side of this town and everything else is... um... But I do think on the Calder fire, the um, uh, taking advantage of where there's been fuel treatments done, the Calder fire should be a lesson to us on that, that um, I, I know I always was was concerned, upset, annoyed as a fire behavior analyst when no one could tell me where the fuels work had been done in the fire area. Yeah. So I couldn't advise the operations people on how they could use that. I think we've learned, one thing we really have learned is to know where it is 
to have it mapped in advance, to get that information to the teams and the firefighters in real time. And when things go right, then it can be used like it was. And that includes areas that have burned in previous wildfires where we know, I'm not going to say the fire is going to lie down, but we know that the fire behavior is going to change when it enters uh, those things. But for them to work, they have to be, as in the Lake Tahoe Basin, really extensive. Right. There has to be a huge number of engines in place to support the operations as there were, were on the Calder Fire because it was South Lake Tahoe and Myers and Christmas Valley. Um, it's harder to do when you're dealing with lower priority fires uh, because there are priorities set for fires in the state of California. And usually they're set based on what fires started first. Right. Well, and I think one thing that's telling on the Calder Fire is that all that fuels treatment didn't stop the fire. The fire still jumped across and ran up the other side of the mountain. And I think there's this expectation we've had that somehow that fuels treatments are going to be useful in stopping these fires. And what we saw in South Lake Tahoe is they were useful in protecting an asset. Yeah. But they didn't stop the fire. And so that we should maybe have a different expectation that we're going to put in fuel treatments and they're going to help us protect the town. But they aren't necessarily going to save the forest. They're not going to stop the fire. True. Well, you know, fuel treatments, especially large prescribed burns or earlier fires, do change the fire behavior and give you opportunities. But you have to be lucky. The fire has to hit the area like in the night instead of in the middle of the burning period when it's spotting a mile or two ahead. Uh, you have to have the resources uh, and it takes a lot of them yeah. to support um, line construction or whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, it, and I, I think we have always oh, overestimated the effectiveness of fuel treatments in stopping fires. They right. don't. They just give you an opportunity. And the more that you have on the landscape, the more likely you'll get lucky. Yeah, the more likely that you'll get lucky. But it is important for the teams or the fire departments to know where they are so they can be used. And that's something I think ha that started to happen because of the availability of JS products, you know, and layers that right. that show you where they are. Yeah, and which, that's been tough on private lands. Oh, yeah. Well, it's tough on private lands because no one collects the information. Well, what we've started to do in our work is just rely on satellite imagery to map fuel treatments on private lands because different landowners collect information differently. Different landowners have different desires of whether or not they want to share their GIS data. But satellite imagery doesn't really lie. You can see where a thinning's happened. Even so, I think um, on the Dixie Fire, especially in the area around Chester, you know, I was just pretty shocked at the destruction in, in this area that's had you know, tens of thousands of acres of thinning over the past 30 years, there's no green trees for, you know, 50,000 acres. And I'd always expected that, I think just based because we hadn't had large fires there in the past and because there's such good access, I just, uh, I was, I got to say, I was really shocked at mm -hmm. that. And it made me question 
if it's worth thinning in the name of fire suppression if we aren't going to follow up with burning, if it's worth even doing at all? Well, I, I think we all know that nothing except a moonscape could have stopped the Dixie fire when it got in alignment with those drainages, given just how incredibly dry it was. There has to be a balance because there are times when those activities will help, but under the worst, and you know, it's a, I don't even know what worst case is anymore after seeing the way that fire behaved. I think you're right that it might not have changed the outcome in this area to the west of Chester. And I think one of the problems that we have there is just that we've removed all the largest trees from that landscape. And so, you know, when the largest tree on the landscape is 80 feet tall, you've got such a high proportion of that landscape is more susceptible to crowning and torching. Yeah, well, uniformity, you know, you, uh, we, the Park Service, who I worked for for a long time, um, I think recognizes that heterogeneity in forest structures is pretty important to making them more resilient to, um, to damage from fire. And uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, when, when the park gets a chance to go in to, um, you know, the Campy Complex, which is currently burning in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. It'll be interesting to see what some places which are very close to my heart, like Redwood Mountain, where there's been a history of a combination, not always, but there's, there was quite a bit of thinning combined with prescribed burning there. When the park said, yeah, you know, there are places we need to um, go in and, and remove the white fur invasion under the giant sequoias, this is important. And they did. And it was controversial because, um, of course, the remo removal of the trees wasn't for a commercial purpose. They didn't sell the material, but um, just use of chainsaws is is always something that that is controversial in the right. national parks. Or even mechanical harvesting machines in yeah. some places, right? And it's expensive. And if if you don't um, commercialize the product, then you, ha you have to pay for it, and it costs a lot. So coming back to the um, heterogeneity of forest structure, I see this huge challenge in that we everyone is talking about scaling up prescribed fire but we're faced with shrinking windows of opportunity because of you know the drier climate and the drought. And I've thought for a long time that you know um, the public needs to understand that killing trees is the objective of prescribed fire in a lot of times. You know, and so if we were going to come in and thin an area, we would kill 50 or 60% of the trees with logging. And in a lot of places where it's not practical to do that on a landscape scale, prescribed fire is one of those tools we can use. Yet people, when they see a bunch of trees killed by a prescribed fire, they think that it's a failure. And I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on um, how to make it more acceptable to the public that we're going to kill a lot of trees with prescribed fire, given our shrinking windows and just the enormity of the scale of the land that we need to treat. Well... When agencies or burn bosses or managers write objectives for prescribed burns, um, they almost always put in uh, a, a level of acceptable mortality. 
the problem is when you reach that, nobody likes the way it looks. It's hard for people to accept that prescribed burning is going to uh, kill some trees, and it may be the objective. And prescribed burning is is not a fire is not a selective tool. You know, when you uh, you can't use uh, prescribed fire to necessarily to kill every other tree. I mean, I learned that in Everglades when I went back after Hurricane Andrew. We've been trying to thin out those Dade County pines for years with fire, and they refused to die. So, uh, but when Hurricane Andrew came through, it took out about a third of, in a very regular pattern, it was weird, took out about a third of the stand. And it was a valuable lesson for me, as you don't always know. And certainly, uh, I think writing better objectives, more realistic objectives for prescribed burns, and then explaining that beforehand uh, is a good idea. It's always good in, in concept until you see the reality and a lot of these landscapes haven't had a lot of fire. So the people that live there haven't seen it, don't understand it. It's, it's mostly, in California, it's, it's an educational um, issue. And the public really does need to understand the trade-offs. You take some risk. And not just you take risk of escapes, but you also take risks of uh, producing Im- effects that appear, at least in the very short term, unacceptable. Meaning that we've burned it hot and there are a lot of dead trees after we're done. But when we look at the consequences of not doing the work in terms of not so much the fires, but also that massive die-off of trees that we had just a few years ago uh, with an inability to deal with it because of the scale. I mean, a lot of people say this. There's just too many trees too close together under drought conditions. And uh, when that that event of die-off was the equivalent, really, in a lot of ways of, of, you know, what we would consider a pretty devastating wildfire. And it, But we need to accept that the land management goals... Uh, for the lower elevations are going to have to move. Um, we're going to have to move our thinking about where we can grow trees up. Right. And I don't know that um, we've really addressed that. Okay, so what you're talking about there is just the idea that because the climate's growing warmer, that trees right now that are happy growing at 1,500 feet elevation, maybe they'll be better off growing at 2,500 feet in the future? Well, there's been quite a bit of research on this. I mean, especially out of uh, UC Merced and, uh, well, a lot of researchers are talking about that. I think, um, but we, it's great conceptually, but how do we do this in practice? Right. Well, I think that, you know, around here, fire is forcing that conversation. So, you know, we have landowners like Sierra Pacific Industries and Concow that have lost, um, you know, they lost land in 2008 fires that had been planted in 2000, and then they replanted and lost it in 2018. And now they're just, they're leaving those lands alone. They're not going to plant them again. So we see industry adapting to this climate change by retreating. Or refocusing their efforts. Yeah, I'm not, I don't, I haven't talked to them about that. Uh, I mean, I think that's something that you maybe know more about than 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think in general, the, the private landowners, they see the writing on the wall in some of these lower elevation areas like Concow, where it's just clear that we'll never grow a tree for 60 years to get it large enough to turn into a two by four. If we're pretty much fairly certain we're going to have fire there every 10 years. Yeah, well, that was a beautiful forest, Concow. I mean, that was really, uh, I, you know, I just tragic fire. But again, that was one of those, you know, Paradise and Concow and Megalia have been threatened by fire because of the wind patterns on a number of occasions. I think we've kind of been, you know, even in spite of the... Um, Climate change, I think we've been sort of lucky with uh, not having something. I'm not saying that that um, the campfire and some of the other recent fires weren't influenced by climate change and the dryness, but I know when I worked on an engine out of Butte Meadows, we used to drive around in uh, in the area between Butte Meadows, and, um, and I, I was just kind of amazed that it hadn't burned. It was just remarkable that we'd been lucky by keeping the fires small, but unlucky because that allowed all that even more fuel to accumulate. Yeah, I think kind of the haunting thing about this conversation is just that you were seeing this happening 40 years before the campfire even happened. So we had 40 years for more fuel to accumulate even after you'd seen it at those remarkable levels in the late 70s. So shifting gears a little bit here, I want to talk more about the public discourse around these large fires. You know, relations have always been strained between CAL FIRE and the Forest Service, but each year it seems that it's things are getting worse, the communication's getting more difficult. And, you know, especially now with the Dixie Fire being over, I just there's a it just seems that these mega fires are really kind of taking things to a breaking point. Not only in the relationships between the state and federal agencies, but also in the relationship between the public and the agencies. I know that it's really hard for people who work for agencies to speak out about these things while they're still employed, but what do you feel the responsibility is of people who've retired to help the public understand how things are working, how they're not working, and maybe where we can go from here? I have a lot of opinions about my colleagues who are my age, implying that if they were still fighting fire, this wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think given the changes in fire behavior, that it's unfortunate that uh, people are either A, you know, I get a lot of emails uh, from old firefighters and see a lot of jokes on the old firefighter Facebook page about if they were still fighting fire, they wouldn't be a bunch of wimps, and um, they would be, you know, taking more risks. You know, these guys won't go direct. You know, there's a lot of that verbiage out there. I just think things aren't the same. Even if you could still use a brush hook and um, stay out all night and eat sea rations and not stay in a motel, it that is not the reason that we're having such a hard time uh, putting these fires out. To me, it's illogical to say that if we went back to what we used to do, 
everything would be fine because nothing is the same. First of all, there is just the proliferation of development in the wooey is a huge complication because a lot of the energy we used to put into uh, putting in line has to be redirected to protecting people's houses that are that have moved out into the wildlands. And then the change in fire behavior, it is almost delusional to imply that if we went back to the way we used to do it, that we'd be able to put out these fires, all of them small, and go home in less than two weeks. They would be having the same problems everybody else is having trying to deal with these fires. Right. When I hear a lot from people in Plumas County, they feel like the foresters, if if they would have tried harder, they could have saved Greenville. If they would have done this, if they would have done that. And and I think, you know, we can all second guess whether what tactics worked and which ones didn't, but to assume that people were just sitting around and didn't want to put the fire out is you know, it's hard to hear that. It's hard to hear that. This is normal. I mean, I totally sympathize with the people in Plumas County that are heartbroken over what's happened. And it is completely reasonable for them to lash out because they've lost so much. But we've all lost it. And most firefighters are pretty heartbroken about the situation too, you know, and feel that they should have been able to do more. And they don't need to hear it from anyone else. They already hear it in their own heads. So I hear a lot of people saying that, you know, we just need to get back to active forest management. And um, that brings, for me, that brings up some questions of scale. You know, um, I found a statistic recently that I think um, Sierra Pacific Industries owns something like 2 million acres and they've logged something like 600,000 acres in the last 25 years. So when I hear, um, people say that the target's going to be a million acres of treatment a year. To me, it's like, well, if the people who have the bulk of the capacity in the industry are doing maybe 25,000 acres a year, how do we think that we could actually scale up to a million acres? So if you were the, um, you know, regional forester or um, in a position to, to influence how we would move forward with large-scale forest management, what would your toolbox have in it? Well, every tool that there is. We can't, you know, there's not, we have to do it all. Um, the million acres in California that the governor set, um, you know, it, it comes with a, um, it reminds me, I won't speak specifically to that, but when we had the National Fire Plan in 2000, um, I was working for the Forest Service and uh, Congress, basically the Forest Service made an argument that if, at the national level, that if uh, we got this large influx of money, that um, we would reduce suppression costs, because that was the concern, that you could, you could do enough fuel treatment that you could reduce suppression costs. That did not happen. Suppression costs continued to go up. And I think the, um, the, what we need to do is stay in it for the long haul. A, 
one-time influx of money, what happens when you get a whole lot of money to do fuels treatment or timber management, whatever it is that we're going to do to um, to reduce fire size or whatever it is that we want to do to influence fire regimes, let's call it that. When you get a one-time influx, there's not enough back, there's not enough stuff planned that's been approved through NEPA CEQA, the VMP that we have in California now, there's not enough projects in the pipeline to um, to do a lot a lot of large scale work. To spend all that money. To spend all the money, it's like a self fulfilling prophecy because you the money comes in, you take it, you try to give it out. There's not enough projects. Somehow it goes out there and projects are done, but. The expected, the promised outcome of less fire, less damaging fire, whatever metric you want to choose, or reduce suppression costs, doesn't pan out. So it's a one-time thing. We need to commit to investing that amount every year and not lose interest. Mm -hmm. It has to be a constant effort over a very long period without a lot of expectations of changing something large scale. Um, and the history is that at least the national, I'll just use the national fire plan as an example. The money came in, it got allocated. We hired a lot of people and uh, then, you know, inflation, uh, you know, the money gradually gets absorbed into the system and uh, legislators lose interest in continuing and they move on to the next big thing. So you hired a bunch of fire ecologists and people to write NEPA and fuels planners. Archaeologists. We hired a lot of people. and But we didn't have... We needed to have enough time to put that into effect with the same amount of money um, so that the program could so it could sustain itself could sustain itself and mm. normally um when that happens um people have moved on and there there are a lot of cycles that occur with funding like that mm -hmm. and then how much of that work you know when we hear about um environmental litigation slowing the implementation of fuels projects like would you say that you know do you have an idea of what percentage of the acreage that you planned never got done because of objections I, I don't really think that was a big factor mm -hmm. um in the force the the forest service has the appeals process and um that usually is um is exercised uh with nepa documents that include things like salvage so it depends on how you define fuels treatment. Uh -huh. um, there's, you know, the broad, there, there, there's a more, there's, there are, it, it that varies over time. Mm -hmm. What is fuels treatment? Um, and what can be funded with money that is set aside for fuels treatment has changed and evolved over time. Okay. Yeah, I, I think um, as far as people's, the current objections uh, to um, 
in, environmental groups that are uh, keeping agencies um, from doing work, I just got to say, they could be a little in, disingenuous. Um, there's lots of barriers to getting work done. Mm -hmm. And it is, um, it's usually, uh, it's just one of the many things, and it isn't always the most important thing. Is, and and uh, slowing the pace of implementation. And, yes, yeah. But it's convenient right now to um, to try to point the finger in that direction. I, I would be pointing it in, in, in a wide range of directions and not directing it at... Um, one individual or one group. Oh, or... and in a few individuals that litigate a lot. Mm -hmm. um, because if that was the only problem... We would have solved it. Right. Well, I think the hardest thing to communicate is just the scale of the problem, that we've got 30 million acres of forest in California and that it's extremely expensive to treat this stuff, that a lot of it's not merchantable, and that the industrial capacity is based around long-term trends in housing construction and federal land management, and that no one's going to go out and build a new sawmill tomorrow just because the Forest Service says they want to cut a bunch of trees. Well, the what industry will say is that um, they need some kind of guaranteed stream of product, and they do, mm. to uh, fund something very expensive like that over the long term. And um, when we lost all the mills in most of the mills in California over a relatively short period, uh, getting them back is has been very difficult. So based on your experience, what are our options for using fire to manage the um, fuels in the areas burned with high severity by the Dixie Fire? You know, if we look out 10, 20, 30 years, are there places where people have used fire on a regular interval after a large fire like this to reduce the fuel loading? You mean where there's lots of snags? Yeah. The Park Service has tried. You know, once the brush gets established, because um, I don't think there's going to be large areas where, you know, they use a lot of herbicide, I wouldn't think. So the brush will get established, and then the area will be not particularly flammable for for quite a while, if the brush is reestablished. It's very difficult. I mean, nature, to me, nature just kind of has to take its course, and it's going to be a really long-term process. Well, I just look at, you know, on the Dixie Fire, we had a snag patch on the Reading Fire, and the fire made its way through there over the course of a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I'm sure, reduced a lot of the, the branches and other fuels. Well, when I looked at, we had some fires in um, the Rim Fire area in Yosemite where in the areas that burned really hot, and then there was a subsequent wildfire that was an escape prescribed burn. It's the Meadow Fire. On those fires, you get this sort of cigar thing where the fire burns through the down logs, you know, and then goes to the next down log and makes, it way, makes its way through the brush patch. I have no idea how the Dixie fire burned, you know, because mm -hmm. I in in the reading fire because I didn't see it, and I haven't really heard any. Uh, I've heard a few things, but I I don't know how it did. But mm -hmm. 
In Yosemite, it, it is a problem to do prescribed fire or managed fire in those areas because of the hazards from all the snags. Right. And especially in parks where the trees are really large, it becomes even more problematic. And, you know, we, we really don't want to uh, put firefighters in those snag patches. Right. You know, and the bigger the snag patch, the harder it's going to be to put people in to do managed fire. Right. You know, I always advocated for once we got a large fire to blow holes in it to try to introduce some landscape variation Mm-hmm. instead of having everything the same age because as the fires have continued to get bigger and bigger you get more and more uniformity in the areas that are you know coming back so when you talk about blowing holes in it what are you talking about how would you do that well with fire or people have discussed doing salvage in a way that would uh, that was less uniform and is more strategic to create uh, heterogeneity, and I don't know whether that's ever been done, but that's another way that you could potentially approach it. Sue and I continue to have this great conversation about forestry and salvage and post-fire landscapes, but we've got to cut it short here. Um, We're working on another story for the lookout about the reading fire that burned it within the Dixie fire and how it changed some outcomes. Um, I didn't do a proper outro with Sue, so I don't have her saying goodbye, but Really appreciate her coming to talk to us. And uh, once again, thanks to Amanda for asking me to guest host the show. Thanks for coming on as guest host, Zeke. That was a fantastic episode. And I stand by my assertion that maybe you should have your own podcast because that was fantastic. And I think you might be better at this than I am. Anyways, thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to support The Lookout, which is Zeke's uh, sort of digital media project, uh, you can find information about The Lookout in our episode's show notes. And you can also find information about how to donate to The Lookout, as well as how to donate to Life with Fire. Donating to either of these projects helps support storytelling and education in the wildland fire community, as well as communities that are impacted by wildland fire. So we appreciate your support. I'm sure Zeke would appreciate the support as well. And for right now, signing off, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks.